Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Peter Maher, CEO at St. Vincent de Paul Society Queensland, and also St. Vincent de Paul Society Northern Territory. It's fantastic to have you along today, and I hope wherever you are, life is treating you wonderfully, you're achieving your goals effortlessly, and all is well. Peter Maher is a great guy who I've known for over seven years, and he is certainly very highly regarded, not only in the not-for-profit sector, but also in the broader business community here in Queensland. Before I introduce Peter to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any vacancies in your team that we can assist with, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you, Peter Maher. Peter Maher grew up in Sydney and Canberra as the second eldest of nine children. He began his career as a school teacher and principal before moving into the Australian Public Service, working for the Australian Bureau of Statistics and then Centrelink and Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. In 2005, he moved to Brisbane to take on his current role, CEO of St. Vincent de Paul Society Queensland to which he has also recently added CEO of their Northern Territory business. For his work in the not-for-profit sector, he has been given a Medal of the Order of Australia. Peter Maher lives in Brisbane with his wife. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Peter Maher. Well, Peter, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's fantastic to have you along on this uh, extremely beautiful uh, Brisbane spring day. The weather's been superb. It sure has. I mean, it's great living in Brisbane. Having come from Canberra, I love Brisbane. <laughs> and we're recording this the day after Melbourne Cup. Did you uh, have a bet yesterday? No, I was actually on a plane, so I oh, missed really? it. <laughs> oh, no worries. I uh, had a, uh, I won the $2 sweep. I was very excited. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, just to, uh, to begin with, maybe just uh, introduce um, your current professional responsibilities. Sure. Look, I'm currently the CEO of St Vincent de Paul in Queensland and I've been in that position now for the uh, 12 years in November. And I have also, from the 1st of July, taken over as this year as the CEO of St Vincent de Paul in the Northern Territory. And my position uh, involves, obviously a lot of people know Vinnie's as the Vinnie's Shops. Mm -hmm. I've got 143 of those across Queensland. And some of those, uh, our biggest one last year took 1.43 million. Wow. Uh, and so there's obviously all the retail side, and we use the shops to provide assistance to the poor. We also use the shops to uh, collect money, which we then can distribute to pay mm-hmm. everything from electricity bills to mm-hmm. whatever. So a lot of people know Vinnie's, obviously, from the shops, but there is a lot more that Vinnie's does, and, and in my role, 
we run uh, aged care services, disability services, child safety services, mm-hmm. uh, housing. We've got about 500 units of accommodation across the state. Mm-hmm. We're the sole shareholder of Auscare. So Auscare is, is also uh, now under the St Vincent de Paul umbrella. Okay. So a very broad and wide mandate. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. And what about other than St Vinnie's, and we'll obviously uh, get in and talk about that a lot more later, um, any other board responsibilities or things at the moment? Uh, look, I have been on quite a few boards, but yep. at this stage, uh, given that I've just taken over the Northern Territory, I've sure. stepped off a couple of my board roles uh-huh. at this time. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, let's uh, let's go to where it all began and uh, tell us a little bit about where you were born and uh, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, of which I know that there were many. Right. Well, I uh, was originally born in uh, Sydney. Right. Um, and I was the... Um, I'm one of nine. I've got seven sisters and one brother. Right. I'm number two in the family. Okay. So a fairly large, obviously, family. I think uh, what was often referred to, I think, as Vatican roulette for birth control. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, very much we were, um, I I think, a a family that... We we were a loving family. We got on really well together. Yeah. Even today, you know, all of us still get on very well together. Okay. I think uh, my mother was very much a person who always had time for people. Right. And uh, that really, I think, influenced, I think, the family enormously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and, and even today, my mother has, I think it's 43 grandkids, and I think last time it was about 14 great-grandkids. <laughs> wow. But she just loves to have family and people around. And okay. If I was to front to my mother's place even now and took 20 people along, it wouldn't fluster her at all. It's like, well, we'll find something in the freezer or we'll just go and order pizza or something, but very much loves to have people call in and be with her. Oh, very good. And what about uh, your father? What sort of work did he do? Look, my father uh, originally started his career uh, with the ABC uh, as a public servant and then went out into private enterprise. But after a few years and after we'd had sort of Uh, five kids he thought I need to get something a bit more secure so he went back into the public service but he was a fairly I'd say low level public servant Um, and and it was interesting you know when I look at at my father and the influences if you like that that he had on my life and a couple of things that really come to mind I think one I remember coming home from school one day and I noticed that dad was home and Mm -hmm. dad was usually never home I said dad how come you're home and he said oh you know, we've got a had a staff Christmas party on today. And I said, well, why aren't you at the staff Christmas party? And he said, oh, because it costs a couple of dollars and I'd rather use the money to buy a carton of ice cream for the family right. than go to the Christmas party. Okay. And so Dad was a bit like that. I mean, he... Um, we Obviously, at that stage, in those days, we only had usually one income earner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what my father would do is if he wanted to take us on a holiday, he'd go out and he'd buy a a dilapidated caravan and he'd do it up and he'd clean it or he'd even go and buy a dilapidated car that he could do up and he'd tow the caravan and off we'd go on a holiday as kids and then when we'd come back he'd sell it and that would pay for the holiday. Right. So it was things like that 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 Dad did Uh quite regularly. So very practical man. Very practical. Right. Um, And probably what I'd say also too is he had a very deep faith but it was in what I'd almost call a fundamental sort of faith. Okay. What do you Um, mean by that? What I mean by that is he sort of saw from his perspective it was important that he went to church every day. That was what... Right. It was to him because 
he figured that he could get these special blessings if he went to church every okay, day. Because right. if he missed one day, he had to go and attend church for the next nine days to be able to get the same blessing. Right. So he couldn't miss a day. So okay. it was very, very traditional, whereas my mother was, again, the complete reverse. Okay. And what does the reverse mean? Well, the reverse from my mother's comment was that if I don't feel like going to church, I'm not going to go to church. Right. Um, and if I do want to go to church, well, I'll go. And I don't right. care whether it's a Sunday or whatever. Yeah. I'll go when I want to go. And, right. And, and also felt that she had a very strong relationship with her God. Okay. And so what did that mean for nine children, you know, uh, growing up in that household? I mean, it must have been uh, to have two, I mean, obviously the same faith, but two sort of very different views about that. Uh, how did that affect the family? Oh, look, I think over time, uh, different kids rebelled right. in certain ways, yeah. obviously, I think as as teenagers do. But then on the other side of the coin, it also had some that were very heavily involved uh, with kids, go- with okay. uh, youth groups particularly, right. as some of us were growing up. So I think we, we learnt to play guitar through sort of church okay. groups and, and probably had quite a good social life as okay. a result of that. And as one of two boys with seven sisters... Uh, that would have been uh, pretty challenging too, I imagine. Well, it was, and there's quite a bit of difference between the two boys. Right. So uh, uh, there's about 10 years difference okay. between us. And um, my brother, I think, always felt that he was a little bit in my shoes, which right. was probably a little bit hard for him. But, uh, uh, you know, here he was when he was off at school and, and his older brother's a teacher. Okay. Uh, it was a little bit difficult for yeah, him. Yeah, oh, sure. Uh, but uh, he, he managed, obviously. Okay, great. And so, uh, uh, obviously, um, pri- uh, primary school and then high school and then uh, straight into university? Yeah, look, um, I did. I grew up originally in Sydney. We moved to Canberra on the first day that man set foot in the moon, which oh, is yeah. my... Uh, I was going into high school there, so it was very different from moving from Sydney educationally to Canberra. I found it a very different approach and I think a lot more focused on education in Canberra than probably Sydney where we lived. So was that a good thing? Look, I think it was a very good thing. Okay, yeah. Um, And so as a result of that, and I'd have to say that, you know, I wasn't a great um, student, I can remember one day, you know, asking my father to help me with my maths. Right. And uh, I'd been struggling with this question for hours, and I said to Dad, look, Dad, can you help me with this uh, equation that I'm trying to work out? And he just looks at it and says to me, the answer's minus one. And I said, oh, wow, Dad, how did you get that? And his response was, can you think of a better answer? And <laughs> off he walked. So, you know, I, I never really got a lot of support. Um, All right. So was that the right answer? Or? No, it wasn't. It okay. was just his... Right. sense of humour to uh-huh. just sort of say oh well I can't think of anything else so just put that down <laughs> so it, it wasn't a great lot of help so look you know in a way we had to stand on our own two yeah, feet sure. okay. and I think it was in an era too like with quite a few of my sisters where dad's attitude was a little bit conservative in terms mm-hmm. of girls go off and get almost and... get a job and get right. married yeah. and have kids and, right. uh, so you know, and obviously a few of the sisters rebelled on that, right. and, and that's great, but it was in part of sort of coming over from that era. Sure. Um, so uh, you were high-schooled in Canberra? High-schooled in Canberra. It's interesting, too, in, when I finished Year 12, I got a, um, a reference from my school principal right. at the end of Year 12, 
And I still have that reference today, which I think was very interesting. And there's one part of it I'll share with you, actually. It says that Peter is interested in helping people. If he can handle the studies, would appear to have the qualities required for a teacher. Right. I'm happy to support his request for admission to the Catholic College of Education. He has high ideals. Okay. Um, I don't know whether that was probably the kick I needed. I'm not sure. But uh, it at least did get me into... um, into the Catholic Teachers College right. uh, in Canberra at the time. And uh, I was actually the first group of guys to actually go through this uh, Teachers College, which okay. was focused on uh, primary education. Okay. So prior to that, all female students? Basically, it had all been female right. students. Wow. So my life seems to be revolved around females, okay. I think. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so then I uh, uh, became a, a teacher after I did three years of initial uh, training there. Right. And I'd have to say, as a student, I was—I uh, did the bare minimum just to, to pass, yeah. and then started teaching. Okay. And uh, whilst you were going through university, did you have a part-time job or anything uh, like that? Look, as soon as I was old enough, I uh, got a part-time job at Woolies. Oh, me too. And uh, <laughs> good old Woolies. Actually, I think I think it is tremendous for, for young people to actually get a job, whether Woolies, McDonald's, yeah. those places. What was interesting, and for me. Because of nine kids, we, we struggled. Uh, I never knew what it was to have a new pair of grey school pants like all the other kids did. I always got mine from Vinnie's, and they right. were usually a different coloured grey. Okay. So I can remember after working uh, at Woolies for a few weeks, and I was on 68 cents an hour, Yeah. Uh, I actually got enough money to go and buy a Fletcher Jones pair of school right. pants, there and I go. was absolutely tickled pink. That right. was Highlight of my working career. <laughs> I worked at Woolies uh, for four years. Uh, the day I turned 15, I walked in and got a job there. And uh, I can't remember. I think when I was there, I was paid about $3 an hour. Uh, but, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a, uh, good fun and a great way to start to learn You know what it meant to be responsible. Well, it was. And it was interesting in the time that I was there... Uh, and again, I don't know whether it's the influence of being part of a large family where you do have to step up. Mm-hmm. And so at the got to the stage after probably about two years that the manager of the shop used to duck across the road to the pub and have a few drinks on Friday evenings and used to leave me in charge of the <laughs> shop. And the arrangement always was that if I had any problems, I knew where to find him. Right. And just head over and get me, Pete, if there's any, uh-huh. any worries. Okay. Uh, which was great to have that responsibility. Sure. And it also got to the stage after another couple of years where he'd make me responsible to bring in a whole lot of the fellows early of a morning to pack the shelves oh, yeah. and so on. So, again, I think it was a really an excellent learning okay. opportunity. And so uh, you held that job all the way through your teaching training? Yes, all my way through teaching training. So for probably about... Uh, Year nine, I think, at school right, right. through, so okay. it was great. Okay, and then so once you'd completed your qualifications, you then got your first job as a teacher. Well, my, yes, my first teaching job was in a place called Kunamundra, Okay, a small country town, but yeah. uh, lovely. And uh, what uh, grades were you teaching then? Uh, I taught grade five at that stage. Okay, right. Um, and so you ended up uh, working as a teacher for you know many years. Uh, look, I worked, I think, all up, uh, I think it was probably about 10 or 15 years. But in that time, I think in the 15 years, I'd become a deputy principal mm-hmm. and a sort of a subject um, master and also a principal. Okay, okay. And so what eventually uh, led you to exit and go and work in a, a new field? 
Well, look, it was interesting. I think um, after I'd been teaching for about three years, the education department offered a scholarship for any teacher that was prepared to go to Sydney um, to do study for 12 months on right. full pay. And okay. I put my hand up and got it. Right. That, I think, had a huge change on my life because it my attitude to study changed totally from there. It was almost like a light bulb went on. I think it was probably a bit more maturity. And so I started to have this love of education after that 12 months. And so I came back then and started doing a lot of part-time um, study as well after mm-hmm. that. Okay. And so I found that... Uh, I was principal at 31, and particularly by that stage I'd had a master's and Mm -hmm. a couple of other qualifications Mm -hmm. as well. Which for that time would have been unusual, wouldn't it? Well, it was fairly unusual, and I think so. The qualifications, I think, really did help me uh, in getting securing my first principal's Mm -hmm. job. It was a fairly large school, and and as a principal at 31, I uh, tended to find that uh, because I was what was called a non-teaching principal, mm-hmm. I tended to do a lot of work for the education department as mm-hmm. well. Okay. And I'd been very critical as a teacher of all these people in education offices that had lost touch with what was going on in the schools. Mm-hmm. And so I thought after I'd been principal for four years, what do I do now? And mm-hmm. I could see the path was almost, you know, them wanting me to head into the education office. And I right. thought, no, that's not what I want to do. And I remember actually being off at a principal's conference and... Um, Back in those days, we didn't get our own rooms. We had to share rooms with another principal. And I remember sharing a room with the principal there and said, look, I really want to get myself into a position where I can make a difference. And I want to go and try and get into government and influence the whole funding arrangements of government to non-government schools. Mm. So that was my sort of direction. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try for the public service. Okay. So what I did is I thought, well, knowing... Uh, having grown up in Canberra, I knew a little bit about the public service. So I started looking around uh, for jobs in the public service and sent away a few applications and basically got no response. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is no good. I need to do something. Because if you always do what you always did, mm-hmm. you always get what you always got. Sure. So in many cases, it was no response. So yeah. I thought, well, I've got to look at what I'm doing and also talked to a few people. So I had a brother-in-law who was in the public service, and he said to me, look, Pete, you want to get in the public service, you've got to go and start right down the bottom. Well, I mean, you know, that's looking at your career, I mean, because you would have built a, a certain personal brand as a principal and an income that would have come with that and then shifting into, you know, different job, different industry, to use my uh, career coaching language, uh, often that is the case. You need to sacrifice uh, a lot to do that. Well... It turned out, I thought, well, I'm not going to start right down the bottom, but I sort of started to apply for stuff a bit lower, and I ended up at that time taking a drop of about $19,000 a year, which was a fair bit from a principal. But I think within probably 12 months or 18 months, I definitely got back to what I was as principal by going into the public service. Yeah. And so I first started in an adult education area with the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I think, an excellent learning ground. Uh, it was very much, they were very heavily focused on training. Mm-hmm. It was at a time that there was a thing called the training guarantee levy, mm-hmm. and organisations were expected to put a certain percentage of their I remember that. Uh, salaries or gross amount on salaries into training. I think yep. it was about 2% or yep. something along those lines. So that was really good, and, and I remember you know, doing a lot of adult 
education right through from things like change management mm -hmm. to personal development to management and leadership and negotiation and mm -hmm. so on. So thoroughly enjoyed that and then further opportunities opened in the public service and uh, before long I originally went in and worked in the personnel or the um, human services side of the training. Mm -hmm. Then I was asked to manage the statistical training and the IT training and before long I'm managing all the training for ABS. Uh, I was then asked to consider looking after their corporate systems and of course I didn't know much about corporate systems but I knew about managing people and mm -hmm. project management. So in my time there with ABS looking after their corporate systems I completely reinstalled Oracle Financials, okay. um, which is sort of the, almost the, the leopard tank, I think, yes. of, uh, of uh, uh, finance systems. We introduced accrual accounting and I completely redid the chart of accounts. Now, mm -hmm. on one side of the desk, I basically had the IT people and on the other side, I had the accountants. Right. And uh, the problem was ABS at the time had a lot of customizations in their system. And it was costing an absolute fortune every time you got a new patch or you're upgrading the system. You had to decommission all the changes, upgrade it, and then put it back again. And so we thought we've got to identify some efficiencies in this whole process. Mm -hmm. And we had, I think, something in the vicinity of a hundred and something customizations. And I think we ended up getting it down to about 13 or 14. Right. So it was a lot of work, but it was all sort of project management. And, uh, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I imagine in that culture, you know, driving change is not easy, is it? Oh, it's, look, it's not. Yeah. But I think it's important if people, could, if you can get the, all people together to understand mm. why you mm -hmm. need to make the changes, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly also the efficiencies mm -hmm. that can be achieved. And did you find that the leadership competencies you developed in the teaching, moving into principle, translated well into going into a government-owned um, a, you know, a government department, or did you have to fundamentally change the way that you viewed your own leadership and management style? Look, I think um, I think a lot of people underestimate the skills of a teacher. Yep. I think that, uh, and I think even a lot of teachers themselves just mm -hmm. do not realise what great skills they have because they're fantastic negotiators. Mm -hmm. They are fantastic. Um, calmers and settlers at times they can also be great at create creating emotion mm -hmm. whether it's in the students or uh, whatever they may be doing it's about dealing with um, you know it could be aggressive fight on a playground that mm -hmm. teachers got to settle down to controlling and organizing a whole group or sometimes even a whole school of mm -hmm. students and uh, you know I, I even remember the first time I actually went in and took a kindergarten class out and I said to the teacher, I'll look after the kids. So I said, okay, kids, we're going out in the oval. Well, because next thing, these kids go to the door and they shoot off and they're running all <laughs> over the place. So I learnt very clearly, hang on, future, we'll line up at the door, we'll right. then go to this corner, we'll stop, we'll go to that corner right. and stop. So you've really got to, particularly when you're dealing with younger children, you've got yeah. to be very specific. Sure. And so it's a little bit like that in some cases with adults because I a lot of people say adults are really only kids in, in big bodies. And, yeah. uh, I think so. There's a lot of those skills that you do learn and, right. and I found very worthwhile. Okay, uh, so if that's uh, the skills that were similar and able to be utilised, where were the differences? Though? Look, I, I think the differences um, was probably where I'd see for some people um, the public service for some, I think, was 
almost like it things were owed to them. Right. People had this expectation, well, you know, and I have all these rights and, and conditions and right. I don't dare put any extra work in. I mean, right. I found that very, um, very different. And mm-hmm. even to your language, I remember uh, saying to a person one day, uh, so, you know, you and your husband going somewhere and this person just stared at me and said, excuse me, my partner. Right. And so it was, again, it was a whole language uh, sort of thing that I really needed to right. adopt to and to learn at, at the time. And so there were those sort of changes. I, I laughed because when I was went into my first management role, I was talking to this guy who worked for me and his partner, and I said to uh, uh, him, oh, and your uh, uh, wife, and she says... I'm not his wife, I'm his de facto. (laughs) (laughs) So it is amazing. So there are certain cultures, I think, that you um, develop uh, or learn within any organisation, and it's about adapting to that. And the other side of it also is, I think, uh, I found at the time that, um, particularly along the lower levels, it was very Mm time-focused. I mean, as a teacher... You put the hours in that you need. You don't mm-hmm. get paid for it. That's mm-hmm. just part of the job. Yeah. And then all of a sudden to sort of say, well, hang on, you, um, you're going at 3 o'clock or you're going at 5 o'clock or whatever, and I walk out the door and that's it. And yeah. You don't do any, anything else. I mean, I fully, after working in the public service, got a really good handle on what I call the taxation system. Right. Because as a public servant, you never really had to put your hand in your pocket for any additional things, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, as a school principal or as a teacher, if you wanted to have stamps for the kids to to stamp their books, or you want to have jelly beans for the kids, or whatever, all of that came out of your own pocket. Right. You paid for all those things. Yeah. If you happened to be uh, going even to a conference, in many cases, you had to take your own car, and you right. paid for that. Yeah. And you often weren't... Well, this was particularly in the Catholic system. We were not uh, reimbursed for any of those sort of sure. expenses. And um, so, you know, come tax time, you'd try and identify mm. some of your expenses. Mm. But it was very different in the public service because everything was provided for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first joined, I'd be given a chauffeur-driven car would come to the door and pick me up and take me to the airport and then I was given a, a Qantas Club membership mm-hmm. and then I was given an allowance for breakfast and for lunch and dinner and then I was given on top of that a thing called incidentals. Right. And I said to them, what's this incidentals for? And they said, well, that's if you have any out-of-pocket expenses. So but why would I have any out-of-pocket <laughs> expenses if you're already paying for my meals? Oh, well, maybe you want to buy a newspaper or something along those lines. So it was a completely different culture. And uh, because my obvious response then was, well, if I don't use it, do I give it back? What am I supposed to do? Oh, no, you keep it. Right. So it was very, very different. Yeah. Um, And so you're at uh, Bureau of Statistics for about six years and then moved into Centrelink. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I got to the stage in the time and I'd progressed up through uh, ABS and and I realised then that if I wanted to go to the next level in the ABS, the chances were quite small mm-hmm. unless I was a statistician and wanted to go into the whole statistical area because mm-hmm. I was basically in the corporate services area. And I thought, well, I'm really not interested in becoming a statistician. I have a lot of admiration for the work that uh, stats do, but uh, definitely uh, it wasn't for me. So that's when I decided to move to Centrelink. Mm-hmm. And at that time it was, again, a sidewards move. Um, but again, I saw that by making the sideways move was an opportunity to progress up. All right. And, uh, and so what sort of role did you initially move into there? 
I took over a role as managing for the parenting programs across Australia. So okay. that was the single parenting programs, the parenting partnered programs. So, okay. Uh, and, and that was, again, it was a great organisation to work for. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. Um, and it also provided a lot of opportunities uh, mm-hmm. to look at some of the programs and, and identify sort of efficiencies. And, I mean, at that stage or prior to working for Centrelink, I don't think I'd ever set foot in a Centrelink office or knew mm-hmm. what it was like. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gave you a real sense of, of what people are experiencing sure. out there in a lot of cases. Yeah. And so there for about six years. Mm-hmm. And then from there into your role as CEO. Uh, yeah, so what I did while I was there in um, Centrelink, I was originally manager for parenting, then became manager for disabilities. I then got appointed as head of HR for Centrelink, so mm-hmm. 25,000 staff and mm-hmm. all the HR sort of issues. Right. And then I was seconded to go and work in Prime Minister and Cabinet on behalf of Centrelink to look at government welfare reform changes. Okay. Yep. And uh, that was a... Um, uh, wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to be dealing firsthand with basically budget submissions and mm-hmm. and whole new policy directions in welfare reform. And at the time, I got about one point eight billion dollars for Centrelink to implement changes for welfare reform. So they were very happy with the work I did there. And then I thought, at that stage, and a few years before that, I'd had a marriage split up, and I thought, well, look, I need to. Uh, I was spending all my time at work by this stage. I I think I I am a workaholic, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I do spend uh, a lot of time. And I'd actually attended a a seminar at work about work-life balance, and I thought, I I tick all the wrong boxes here very (laughs) clearly. And I'd be quite... It was particularly living in Canberra at the time. Mm. It was better to stay at work at 10 o'clock at night rather than go home, because by the time you got home and had to put the heaters on, it was too cold. So anyway, I spoke to the CEO at the time and I said, look, do you mind if I consider working out posted up in Queensland for mm-hmm. 12 months? I've got elderly parents up there and uh, I just think I need a bit of a break. And mm-hmm. so she agreed to it. And so I uh, moved up here to Queensland, but I was only up here probably about two weeks. And my boss said to me, look, Peter, can't have someone at your level uh, working uh Outposted, you need to come back to Canberra. Right. And I said, Well, look, the CEO's agreed. Yeah. Uh, so I'm staying here for 12 months. I've committed to a lease. And uh, so I'm not at this stage coming back right. and I'll continue. But what I did then is started the, what's called the commute back okay. and forth to Canberra. Right. And uh, I thought, This isn't going to last. So mm. then I thought, Well, it's time to look around and see mm-hmm. what I need to do. And what had brought your parents here to Queensland? Uh, look, I think it was the weather. Right. Uh, and it was interesting because I had, I think by that stage, three or four of my um, sisters had actually moved up here. And I remember talking to one of my brother-in-laws and saying to him once, one day, I said, do you have any regrets about moving to Queensland? He said, oh, yeah, Pete. He said, just one regret. I said, oh, what's that? He said, I didn't do it sooner. Right. Uh, and, and definitely, look, I, I mean, Canberra's a great place to bring up kids and educationally mm. and so on, but... Uh, the weather, you hibernate for at least yeah. six months of the year, yeah. whereas Brisbane I just find is fantastic. Oh, that's good. And so uh, how did the uh, the current role, your CEO role, uh, with St Vincent uh, come to your attention? Uh, look, I a couple of things really. I think while I was up here in the first 12 months, I was working, uh, I'd been doing a management course through uh, Centrelink mm-hmm. at the time, and part of that involved having a mentor. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I remember the mentor saying to me, uh, we had a bit of a discussion, I said, look, I really wouldn't mind staying in Queensland, but, you know, when you get to sort of senior levels, it's important you've got to build some networks mm-hmm. and, and know what's going on. And uh, this person said to me, well, Peter, you know, who do you know that, that you could link with and, be, and, and establish some good networks? And I said, well, the only person I knew in up here really in Queensland was the um, head of Centrelink up here at the time. He said, well, why don't you make contact with him and see if he'll introduce you to some of his networks? Mm-hmm. And I, my initial reaction was, I couldn't do that. And, and my mentor turned around to me and said, why not? I said, well, I don't know, you know. I don't really know him that well, and he may say no and that. And I remember, and I think this is another part of what I call almost a light bulb moment in my career, because <clears throat> I remember him drawing on a piece of paper... Uh, excuse me, a bit like two triangles. And he said, you know, you're at the point of the triangle, uh, or two, sorry, like a, 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 an arrow. And he said, you're more or less at the point of it where you've got a choice. You can ask or you don't ask. Right. He said, if you don't ask, he said, you'll never know and you'll never progress. Mm. He said, if you ask, there's two options. They can say yes or no. But either way, you're a step further... Mm. and where you were if you didn't ask. Mm. Something really simple, but it really had profound effect, and I've used that a lot in my career ever since. Uh, where you've, you've come up against something, you've been resistant to doing it, and then you'll go back to remember that conversation. Exactly, and right. turn around and say, hey, <clears throat> what have I got to lose? Sure. Look, I mean, uh, this is the thing I find with senior executives who are looking for a new job. Uh, they're so reluctant to ask people for help. And yet I think it's just an innate quality and, you know, most people, they love to help. Uh, and people say, oh, I asked this person, they actually offered to help me. Of course. But um, that reluctance is a very real thing, isn't it? Well, it, it really was. And, and so three weeks later when I was time to meet up with my mentor, the day before, I look at my action sheet and realise that I've not done anything. Uh. I've not made contact <laughs> with this person. Right. And so I thought, gee, I better do something. So I got on the phone and thank God they were there. Right. <laughs> that was the first thing. And uh, so I answered the phone. I explained to Sky Paul what I was after and, and his response to me was, oh, Peter, I'd be delighted. Mm. And can I also make another suggestion, he said to me. You ought to consider joining a thing called IPA, the Institute of Public Administration here okay. in Queensland. He said, it's a very strong network of public servants, well worth great networking opportunity. So I said, thank you very much. I hung up and I joined the organisation straight away mm-hmm. and uh, was able to report back to my mentor mm-hmm. the next day that I'd done something. Well, about a week or two later, the Institute of Public Administration had a function. So I went along and you wouldn't believe it, I ran into a guy who I'd known many, many years ago, was in youth groups in Canberra. Mm -hmm. And we just got talking and I told him I was keen to build my network. He said to me, well, Pete, he said, you wouldn't believe it. He said, I work on the same floor as the Public Service Commissioner. He said, we often run into each other in the gents. He said, next time I see him, I'll ask him if he'd like to meet with you. Right. So we did and that started to open up opportunities and and networks and so on to build Mm -hmm. in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And uh, also then I even touched base with some recruitment companies as well and started to go from there. Mm. It's interesting that you uh, talk about <coughs> that because, I, and we'll come to this a bit later in this conversation, I'm sure, but, you know, the CEO sleep out is a wonderful way for, to raise money but also an amazing way to 
connect and broaden your network in quite a, a unique um, environment. So uh, that's obviously been something that's been a big part of your philosophy for a long time. Oh, look, most definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we underestimate the importance of networking. And I found uh, particularly, you know, since I've uh, become CEO, just how important it is and, and how much can be achieved. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in my position in Vinnie's, there's occasions when I might need to talk to the Premier, to a Minister, to a Prime Minister, to whoever. Mm-hmm. And by building those networks, I know that I can then get on the phone pretty quickly mm-hmm. and get to those people if there's an issue, or even to other CEOs. And it's just amazing how, you know, working together, uh, what you can achieve. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think. The skills that I've, I think, grown, particularly in the last few years in terms of learning how to network and not being afraid to go up and talk to any person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often uh, do a little bit of work with uh, some students from um, uh, QUT's business school mm. and I've often said to those students, you know, the reality is that whether I'm Prime Minister one day, I can be unemployed the next day and believe it or not, they go to the toilet in exactly the same way as you or I do. Yeah. There is no difference whether you're Prime Minister, whether I'm the cleaner of a business or whatever. And so I think we really sometimes have to pull people off their pedestals and mm. particularly even CEOs yeah. because they are absolutely no different mm. and uh, start to realise there's nothing wrong with going up and talking to them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it functions as well. Often I've seen in some organisations where no one will almost go and talk to the person in senior positions. Yeah. I, I, my people ask me the question, you know, what are these CEOs like a lot? And, I, and my sort of view is that by the time somebody's gotten to the point of being a CEO, a lot of that sort of aggressive earlier career behaviour where they've had to, you know, really um, fight and, and uh, look after their own interests is largely gone. So CEOs tend to be a lot more available and, and want to help people a lot more because they're at that place now where they want to do those things. Um, so the uh, the Vinnie's job was an advertised role? It was an advertised okay, role. Okay, and you went through a recruitment process. So what do you think it was, I mean, for them, looking at you coming out of public service, um, you know, with a very specific sort of background. What, what, what do you think it was about you that made them confident to give, offer you the opportunity? Look, I think I understand, understood a little bit of their culture. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that helped. I think having, in, in the Vinnie's case particularly, having had an understanding of uh, working in um, a sort of a Catholic environment through my teaching days was mm-hmm. probably worthwhile. I think it was interesting because I think I had four interviews in, in the, for the job. So okay. it was one with the recruiter and then basically three with um, the organisation. So it was very interesting and quite a, a lengthy mm-hmm. type sort of process. And, and I think understandably they wanted to make sure that they got the person that they felt was going to be the right fit for the organisation. Mm-hmm. It was also interesting what I think came out very clearly. They were after someone who could manage people. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important in any job. Mm. Um, you know, as a CEO, you need to be able to manage people. You've got to be able to manage a board and, and the relationships are required there. You need to be able to manage the staff. You need to be able to manage your customers, to manage the press mm-hmm. or whatever. And so it's about having the skills to be able to get the best out of people as well, those that are working for you. And, um, you know, I'm a strong believer in that sort of Stephen Covey okay. emotional bank account right. type 
yep. roles, and I think that's so important in mm. our interaction with everyone. I mean, mm. you know, we underestimate, I think, the importance in any organisation of people like the cleaner, mm-hmm. or we underestimate the important role that the receptionist uh, or the switchbird operator mm-hmm. takes because they can determine whether we get through to the right oh, person course. that we need to. And so do you remember, uh, you know, when you first stepped into the role 11 years ago, what was the mandate? You know, Peter, welcome to Vinnie's. This is what we want you to achieve for us. Um, look, it was... Uh, I think it was an interesting uh, there. I think previously uh, my predecessor had been a person who's tended to spend all their time in the office. Uh-huh. And so I think the mandate very much was to go out and almost settle the staff and make the right. staff make sure that the staff are, are happy and, mm-hmm. and, and happy to do a job. Mm-hmm. I think it's been interesting when I look at what's happened with Vinnie's and when I first got here and, and obviously nothing prepares you till you actually till the reality hits you. And uh, I initially thought, what the hell have I inherited? You know, right. I'd be lucky to be here a couple of years. <laughs> uh, it needed so much what I saw as change. Mm-hmm. And again, I suppose because I'd been fortunate and had the discipline of places like the ABS and um, so very strong understanding of computer systems and that uh, made me realise that, you know, Finneys were using basically Hotmail accounts for people and no proper IT system. Mm -hmm. So had to put an IT system. They had accounting systems all over the place but no uniformity in Mm -hmm. accounting. So I had to tidy all those things up. So there's a lot of processes of tidying up Mm -hmm. what was happening and, in a way, it was my sort of take of initially was sort of, you know, we're not a Mickey Mouse organisation, we need to be professional. Mm-hmm. And so that took quite a bit of work. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so a lot of the sort of the initial work was inward focused on systems and process and human resources, etc. And what about in terms of, you know, the external focus of growing the business or, you know, growing the amount of money generated, etc. Look, that was a very interesting side of the organisation because when I started to delve in and get a real sense of what was going on, I started to realise that, um, well, the whole organisation, I think at the time, was worth about $22 Twelve years down the track, we're worth nearly half a billion now. So it's been huge growth. Mm -hmm. And and part of that really is to identify where... um, we can identify efficiencies, mm-hmm. but where also we can start being a bit more strategic and mm-hmm. streamlining mm-hmm. processes and so on. Mm-hmm. And so we've really had huge growth in our Vinnie shops. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, my feeling is, and I think as a CEO, it's important to get good quality staff around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and not be afraid of them. I mean, if a CEO is afraid that they think someone else more confident or whatever, well, then they're in the wrong job. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really feel that you know all the different staff I've got around me. I mean, there's no way I could do the accountant's job the way they can do it. There's mm-hmm. no way I could do my legal person's job the way they could do it. My general manager operations, my shops coordinators, all those. They're experts in their field, and, mm. and I really welcome that, and, mm-hmm. and I learn a lot from them and continue to learn mm-hmm. from them. Um, you know, even you put me in a shop and ask me to block and colour code items and <laughs> so on, I wouldn't have a clue. But right. over time, I've grown to respect the work that, that people do. It's not a matter of just shoving items on a shelf. There's mm-hmm. a lot of work goes into it and in presenting mm-hmm. our shops. And, and so we really went through a stage of we did all our shops up. Mm-hmm. We... Um, branded them all the same, um, used all the same colour systems, um, identified um, 
how we could make savings and improvements across the whole organisation. So, for example, one thing that hit me fairly early on, we had something in the vicinity of, I think, about 250 cheque accounts across the organisation. Mm-hmm. Most of those were <coughs> sitting in accounts, earning no interest, had money sitting in them. So he said, well, you know, guys, if we were to pool all these together mm. and, and we could scrape a whole lot of money off the top that's not used and we could be earning interest on that, and mm-hmm. you realise each day we could build a couple of houses each year as a result of mm-hmm. the money that we could earn from that interest. So mm-hmm. why don't we start doing these things? So we identified a lot of those sort of processes mm-hmm. and, and started to realise that we needed to pull together as a team. That was the other thing that was... We were very much operating as separate areas, and I know even when I was the CEO, it's a bit in some areas it was like you can't dare come into this area right. without our permission, and, mm. uh, and and I made it very clear from the beginning. And, and I, I did two things, I think, right at the very early, which I think were really important. The first was that I got some really good governance training for my board, mm-hmm. and I think that gave them the, the shake-up in a way that I think they needed to realise that, I had certain responsibilities as a CEO to do, and they had certain responsibilities. Mm. And a lot of the board, I think at the time, their focus was on past events. Mm-hmm. Now, they'd spend an hour and a half going over the minutes from the previous meeting, uh, or they would talk about stuff that had happened in the past rather than being strategic-focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the training we did with that was absolutely wonderful. I remember the facilitator turned around to one of board members and said, so how much public liability does this organisation have? And the person turned around and said, oh, I've only been here three months, I wouldn't know. And the facilitator turned around and said, well, listen, lady, I've only been here a couple of hours and I know what it is and do you realise your house could be on the line? And right. So where would you find that out? Well, you'd go and ask the CEO. So that's what your CEO's here for. Mm. And really spelled out very clearly what were the responsibilities of the CEO mm-hmm. and also made sure that all staff became mm-hmm. under the responsibility of the CEO. Mm-hmm. So that then gave the catalyst then to be able to travel around the state and, mm-hmm. and start to organise things. So, look, <laughs> we've come a huge way over mm-hmm. the last 12 years in Vinnie's. I never thought I would be here mm-hmm. um, to over that time, but over that whole period there has been such growth and, mm-hmm. and such new initiatives all the time. And, mm-hmm. look, I think we've come from where we are to we're now an organisation for I think the last four or five years now we've won Australasian awards for the quality of our annual reporting Mm -hmm. Um, we now have a full-time internal auditor I now have two full-time legal staff I think I've got three CPAs Mm -hmm. um, on staff so it really you know we're talking about running a professional Mm. organisation and what about for yourself uh, you know it's your first time as a CEO You've stepped out not only uh, into a new type of responsibility, but a, a completely new industry, and also stepping out of government into uh, a commercial environment. Given that it's even a not-for-profit, well, you know, when you looked at your own skill set, uh, what were some of the things that you thought? Well, I really need to upskill in these areas in order to make sure I do the best job I possibly can. Look, I think. Uh as a principal, I think there are certain things that probably were similar in a way to, to okay. the role I'm here as, as a CEO. But I think uh, particularly it was in the area of governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I, I am a firm believer that you never stop learning. So, you know, over even over the last few years, I continue to do training mm-hmm. and uh, just 
looking for opportunities because I think I need to be challenged. Mm -hmm. And that's where I found things like the CEO Institute for me has been wonderful because it it, it rocks you a little bit to think outside or not to become complacent. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also done some absolutely brilliant work with a uh, fellow in Sydney on negotiation. Okay. uh, A a fellow called Alan Parker. Right. And... I'd have to say, and look, over the years from someone who, you know, with a reference of if he could become a teacher, I mean, I've got probably nine and a half, nearly ten years now worth of tertiary study behind me. Mm -hmm. And it's only probably the stuff I've done recently that I have found the most amazing and beneficial Mm. stuff in terms of the negotiation. Mm. Uh, And and learning how to shift a person's focus and uh, focusing on people's feelings, hand movements even controlling audiences and so mm-hmm. on has been extremely valuable. Mm. Um, I think the company's called Peak Performance, I think it is, but it's okay. not Alan Parker. I shouldn't give him a plug. but Oh, no, that's fine. Uh, uh, but, but it really has, I think, um, changed um, a lot of, of work that I've been doing, and I've been having him come and do training for right. a lot of my, for my board and my senior executives, and some of them have quite clearly said mm-hmm. this is the best training I've ever done. Fantastic. And so, uh, you know, if you look at over your 12 years or so in the role here, if you had to sort of highlight a couple of key milestones or key achievements that you're most proud of, you know, what would they be? Um, look, I, I think there'd be quite a few. I think, um, obviously, the business, like I said, has grown enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the quality of all our shops and so on. So that whole retail sector and what's happened there. I think when I started, we had 22 units of accommodation. We nearly hit 500. Right. Uh, We're just in the stages of um, setting up a separate uh, company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm also thinking about and been working with my board whether we, in fact, set up and become a not-for-profit real estate agency. Okay. So, you know, even about two years ago, I was sort of thinking, you know, we ought to think about this. Right. So I went off and got my qualification yes, so that, that I could be qualified as a, a real estate agent. Now, I've got no intention of, uh, you know, going out into the private sector in real estate, but if somebody in the organisation needs to hold a real estate licence, right. then I think it probably should be the CEO because mm. the buck stops there. So, okay. you know, that's something that, again, you sort of add another string to your bow. You look where there's opportunities to move forward and constantly looking there. Mm-hmm. It was interesting, another one which was, uh, I'd only been here with the society about a, um, was in my first month, Mm -hmm. and they talked about uh, something that had happened, I think probably about 10 or 12 years before I'd arrived, with uh, where the society at the time had hived off its aged care and homeless facilities and put it into a separate not-for-profit organisation, but had totally lost control Mm -hmm. of it. So I was tasked with getting that back under the control of Vinnie's, which involved a pretty long, uh, drawn-out court case over mm-hmm. about six years. Um, but, you know, at the time, uh, that brought back, I think, about um, uh, uh, probably about um, uh, about 280 odd million dollars worth of assets back under the society. Mm-hmm. And, again, it was one of those things, I think, you, you draw constantly on your career from other experiences. I still remember the first day I started as the head of HR for Centrelink and um, even though I spent most of my time probably dealing direct with the CEO, my official line manager was the deputy. Mm -hmm. And uh, our very first meeting he turned around to me and said, now Peter, you will never take us to court unless you're guaranteed we're going to win. Right. 
and I thought, hmm, that's an interesting first day in the new job. It's an interesting bit of advice. And so I applied that a little bit when I was hit with the whole issue of they wanted me to work towards seeing if we could get what was originally St Vincent's Community Services then became Auscare back under the Vinnie's umbrella. Mm-hmm. So uh, I basically took that advice and, and used that in my role in Vinnie's. And so when we had um, to look towards potentially going to court, we tried mediation and mm-hmm. didn't work. Mm-hmm. So uh, we looked there and uh, we went out with the best. And as a result, when we fronted to court, which was expected to be about a seven-week court case, right. uh, basically settled within about 45 minutes. Wow. And the whole organisation came back under Vinnie's umbrella. So, you know, it was a very... Um, I think that was also a very worthwhile achievement from mm-hmm. Vinnie's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a result of it, it has now got... Um, Care is now a special works of St Vincent de Paul. Mm, okay. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think, a very worthwhile achievement there as well. Uh, Fantastic. Well, that, I think uh, that was around the time that you and I knew each other through the CEO yes. Institute, and uh, I remember that uh, unfolding uh, very well. And uh, tell us about uh, being awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. That's quite a, an acknowledgement, isn't it? Look, it, it really was... Um, it was a lovely um, surprise and uh, a great honour. But I think probably the, the greatest part of it was probably not so much the, the honour, it was actually what my daughter said to me afterwards, after I'd got it. And she just turned around to me and she said, I'm so proud of you, Dad. Right. And, and I think that was the thing that probably more than anything else has stuck in my mind as a result of it. But, look, it, it was a, a lovely honour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I, I'd have to be honest. I mean, I do work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I am committed, I think, to the organisation and the work. I mean, I was recently asked to take over as the CEO for Vinnie's in the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've taken that over from the 1st of July. I've taken that over and all the responsibility and huge travel and extra hours of work for no additional pay, mm-hmm. but because I'm committed to it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's... Also, the thing that I find and very fortunate working for something like Vinnie's because you really feel you're making a difference mm-hmm. to the world and, sure. and what we sort of live in. And I'm humbled, I think, by the people that I deal with, mm-hmm. particularly our volunteers. I mean, I often refer to them as salt of the earth type people. They're the sort of people that would give you the shirt off the back. Many of them may not be, you know, huge professionals in their own business career but they're still prepared to give mm. and share what they've got with others. And, mm. and I think it's that sort of real humbling experience that you see and that you interact with with people that you find um, comes out. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there's a day that I wake up and think I don't want to come to work. Mm-hmm. And it's great because I think it also filters through to the staff. I often say to people, I shouldn't need to see a mission statement on a wall because I should be able to sense it from the moment I walk into an organisation. Mm. And that's what I really try and push through our organisation. Mm-hmm. If I walk into a Vinnie shop, regardless of where it is, I hopefully hope that they will treat people with a lot of respect and dignity and make them feel welcome. Mm. And the people who come into our Vinnie shops and the people that work in, walk into any one of our facilities. And so you look at your career, 12 or so years in the teaching profession, 12 or so years in the uh, public service, now 12 years in your role with St Vincent's, uh, addicted to lifelong learning, 
when you look now into the future, you know, what, what kind of things are you excited about uh, achieving in the balance of your career? Look, I've basically been saying to Vinny's I'm, I'm going to retire in about the next two years or so. Right. Uh, so I, I've sort of, I'm trying to look to that but because the trouble is the government keeps changing the superannuation oh. laws. So <laughs> who knows right. there. But, but look, I think it's, I think um, having recently taken on the Northern Territory, I think it's um, getting to a stage where I think I probably do need to, to look at, you know, whether I do look towards retiring, mm-hmm. whether I maybe just take on a few boards, mm-hmm. but uh, I've now got four grandchildren and right. uh, they're all living in Canberra at present, okay. so I uh, would like to sort of spend a bit more time with, sure. with them. Um, but I think um, I'm a strong believer too, and, and I've tended to adopt with a lot of my fellow CEOs and other organisations in sharing whatever we've got. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've often said to organisations they might be struggling on something, well, listen, here's our policies and procedures, just go and use them. Mm. You know, I think, I don't see us ever being in competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what's important at the end of the end of your, your life, if you like, what are the things that you're going to remember or be able to hold your head up high? Even? And it's not going to be the amount of money you made or it's going to be whether you've made this world and this place a better place mm. because of you. And for a lot of us, it might be our family, our kids, that we can be really proud of. It could be certain achievements that we might have made to actually think, hey, I've made this world a better place because, you know, I've helped to formulate a government policy on this mm. initiative, which is mm. a lot more beneficial to people. Or, you know, <clears throat> I've really been able to make people better managers to be able to, you know, have an influence on other people in their work environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we spend so much time at work um, it really should be, we need to make it fun. Mm. And, and when I mean fun, really have a sense of mission that we are really making a difference. Mm. Um, and also in the same way, we spend a lot of time with family and we want to be able to think also that our family and, and whether it's our kids or whatever, that we leave a legacy. Well, I imagine for your father, who was so committed to his faith and his own value set, you know, you mentioned the story about buying the ice cream earlier. You must be very proud of what you've achieved in your career. Look, I think he really was. Um, I was fortunate, um, actually, just before he died, that I sort of told him, look, I'm not supposed to tell you, Dad, but I am actually getting an order of Australia for my work with Vinnie's. And um, he was absolutely tickle pink because right. he'd actually been a member of St Vincent de Paul for many, many years since I think he was about 18 or 19, okay. <laughs> up until he was sort of too old to be able to help. And so, and that was for him, uh, you know, I think even when I got the job at Vinnie's as well, he was so proud. Oh, that's excellent. And even, even today, you know, my mother, and I think your parents and your family sometimes are great levellers. Mm-hmm. You know, they pull you down to reality a little sure. bit. And, you know, I know my mother has often said to me, you know, over the years, you know, look, Peter, you know, I've gone in and volunteered for Vinnie's, but I wish they'd have decent toilet paper or, right. you know, little things like that, that that your parents will pull you back yeah. in, into yeah. line or, you know, uh, well, you know, just, just you know, be realised, bring yourself down to the, yeah. the general person. Get off your high horse almost <laughs> and, and come down to reality. And, and look, I make it a point of um, always going and talking to the cleaners. I mm-hmm. mean, I was up in Darwin last week at... Um, uh, a session we had at the local library and uh, so the cleaners we were just sort of finishing up and the cleaners were coming in and the cleaners were just tickle pink that we actually said good day to them mm. and also thanked them for the work they're doing and mm. it was like 
Nobody ever thanks us as cleaners. No. And yeah. But it's so important. I mean, how many hospitals would close tomorrow if the cleaners weren't there? Absolutely. My job at university was a cleaner in a hospital, and uh, I worked in the cleaning industry for 12 years, and I can tell you right now that... Uh, those people work very, very hard and uh, often without any gratitude. So I think that that's a great thing. Now, Peter, before we wind up, because I know you've got a busy afternoon, uh, final question. You know, what is it that you do when you're not working? You've said you're a workaholic, but, uh, well, you know, what are the things that you get excited about outside of work to keep your uh, batteries charged? Um, interesting, and, and I think uh, of late, uh, I definitely travel. Right. Uh, I have found... Over the last years, and it's one of the things that I do every year, uh, we have an overseas holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to take a good three or four week block and mm-hmm. get out of the country. And it does a couple of things because I think it's great for the rest of your staff, yeah. um, particularly your senior leadership team, because mm-hmm. they can all step up. And I get different one of the different staff member to take turns as sort of acting the okay. CEO. Yeah. But it also, and because I stress so importantly to act as a team, Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter if you're not here, mm-hmm. but I also think it then identifies clearly that the place just doesn't centre around mm-hmm. one person as well. And I'm always wary of any staff member who doesn't take leave. You know, it's often when you mm-hmm. see fraud issues or right. various other things okay. in an organisation. So I think it's important okay. people to have a good break. And so I definitely do that. I've got the travel bug. I did. You've had some great holidays, haven't you? I have. Uh, this year I've done South America and Antarctica and right. I've done Canada and Alaska. Okay. I've done China. I've done okay. Europe. I've done um, places like Bordeaux and, okay. and all around there. So, so what's yeah. next? Uh, look, it's either going to be... Um, Africa, right? Uh, I think that's on the agenda. Although still really not over Europe. I okay. mean, I'd uh, and one of the things I want to do when I retire is actually probably you know do a little bit more of our own independent um, uh, travelling. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is, I found one holiday I had where we spent a couple of weeks in Crete, okay. and that was lovely, just right. interacting with the locals. I also want to do the Camino Trail, okay. In Spain, so I'd like to do that, but yes. I've got to get a bit fitter I right. think, before I do that one. Yeah, and uh, and what else do you do? So travel's a big thing for you. Travel, um, probably spending time. I like to spend time with the grandkids. Yeah. Um, highlight of my weekend is definitely reading my weekend Australian. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I, I really do enjoy just to sit down and read there. I usually um, try to go down and visit my mother, who's living down the Gold Coast, and uh, I suppose being the uh, just one of two sons. I tend to get lumped right. with all the jobs. Right. It was interesting, though. Uh, I've, I've had some interesting tasks or requests from my mother. I have no issue with changing light bulbs or <laughs> doing the gardens or everything else. But I went down there one day and she asked me whether I would uh, thread her sewing machine for her. My right. mother's 83 uh, years old. Anyway, so I got the manual out and I worked out how to thread the sewing machine. So I was very proud of myself. Right. About three months later, she asked me would I thread her overlocker. Right. I had to draw the line there when I looked at all these right. bits of cotton going all over the I place. Know. And I said, Mum, that's a bit too much for me. <laughs> Ask one of my sisters. <laughs> um, but she ended up, I think, getting one of her carers right. to do it. But oh, uh, So, you know, so I spent a bit of time there just obviously looking oh, after my mum as well. That's great. Well, look, uh, Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again for joining me on the Arate podcast. I think you'll agree that Peter is a very enthusiastic fellow 
who takes his work very seriously and yet at the same time enjoys life. And I'm very pleased to know him well and to have had him on as a guest. I look forward to having you along on future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.